So Matthew chapter 11, verses, I'm going to start in verse 28 and read through 30. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I have never met twins that didn't care about who came out first. One of them rushes to say, but I'm older than he is. I was born 30 seconds before or a minute before. They're just always quick to point out the distinction between them, the the individuality that they each have. Even though they came as a package, they look similar, that individuality is important to them. In Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, we have triplets, okay? Three commands in this passage that come in a distinct order. There's nuance to the commands, but they come as a package, And you got to really receive them as a package. What often happens is that people who call themselves Christians are excited to take the first command. They're excited to have a come-to-Jesus moment, but they neglect the latter two commands, which you'll see in verse 29, and we'll cover this morning. To take His yoke upon you and to learn from Him as your Master. A couple weeks ago, we looked at just the first command in verse 28, come to me. And we saw that that was a great invitation to personal relationship with Jesus. And this is, you could call it the first move of faith. It's to come to Christ, the Savior. And you come with your burden of sin and guilt, and in exchange, He gives you rest. The second and third commands we see in verse 29. Take my yoke upon you, he says, and learn from me. And while these commands come appropriately after the first one, it's something we do after we come to him, and it makes logical sense, it doesn't mean that they're less important or that you can neglect them and only obey the first command. This passage, again, is a package, and we should receive it as a whole invitation to follow Jesus. We've got to just, in short, obey all three of these commands in our response of faith to Christ. See, there's no such thing as a, as a half-baked disciple. Again, somebody who ha- claims to have a come-to-Jesus moment or a spiritual encounter with God, but there's no evidence in their life that they've taken up His yoke and they're learning from Him. We don't make Jesus Lord. We don't make Jesus Lord. And just a couple of verses above, we see that Jesus tells us all authority was given to Him by His Father. His Father makes Him Lord. He is Lord. Lord over all. Lord of heaven and earth. But the question for us as we evaluate our discipleship in this passage is this. Is He my Master? Is He my Master? Am I following Him? As master. Let me ask it this way. 
Are you a slave and a student of Jesus Christ? Are you a slave and a student of Jesus Christ? Let me show you in this passage how we, how we come to these questions. Uh, point number one in your outline is called the master's call. The master's call. I want to look at these two commands in the very beginning of verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. What does Jesus mean by this? Well, first you have to understand what a yoke is. It's not the middle yellow part of an egg. (laughs) Yoke is an important word here to understand this illustration. The yoke is an instrument. I had a picture of it on the title slide. It's an instrument made of bent wood that was placed around the necks of animals or persons. And it was a mark of slavery, of servitude. Let me show you from the scripture. God reminds Israel in Leviticus 26. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves And I have broken the bars of your yoke. In other words, I I freed you from slavery. So yoke, a a metaphor for servitude, slavery. In 1 Kings 12.4, all of Israel assembles before Rehoboam, who is Solomon's son. And they say this, your father has made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. So again, it's a a metaphor for service, for slavery. And so to take up the metaphorical yoke, to respond and obey Jesus' command here, is to bow your neck to serve him. It's a serious call. It is to willingly become a slave to him. Now that's strong language, especially in our context in you know, 21st century United States of America and in, in our, our package of past history and slavery. But you know this, we are all already slaves. Do you understand that? We're all already slaves. The question is, who is your master? Now, before the American in you cries out and says, no, all men are created equal, endowed with rights, the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the Bible says we're all slaves. What what do I mean by that? Well, if you go to passages like Jesus' words in 834, Jesus tells them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. How many of us have committed sin? We don't need to raise a hand because I know every single one would go up in this room. That means you're a slave to sin. You're a slave to sin. Now, you might say, no, no, but I know Jesus. So I've been freed from enslavement to sin. That is true. Romans 6, 6 says, Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So you know Christ, praise God, you've been freed from slavery to sin, but guess what? You become slave to another. Romans 6.17, thanks be to God, 
You were once slaves of sin, but you've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you're committed. And having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. And so again, we're all slaves. Everyone is a slave. You're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. You either follow or serve the prince of the power of this world, which is Satan, or you follow and you serve the good master, Jesus Christ. One of the two. But we all are slaves and we all serve someone. And you know this is true. Maybe for a lot of you, there's a sin in your life that you just can't get rid of. And you're acting like a slave to it. You know that's true. Or there's an idol in your life that you just can't get, get rid of. And, and you know that you serve that idol. For those of us who are in Christ and walking closely with Him, we know we serve the great King, the good Master. And He's a joy to serve. We all know that we're slaves. The question is, who is your Master? Who's your master? And so Jesus not only puts us under his yoke in this passage, but he puts us in his classroom. Look at the second phrase. He says, learn from me and learn from me. Now, this is cool. Uh, that, that preposition from there, it could be translated two ways. The phrase could be translated learn from me or learn of me. Learn from me or learn of me. Now, Charles Spurgeon suggests that both translations give us the big idea here. And that is that Jesus is both the teacher and he's the subject. You understand that? Jesus is the teacher, the professor in the classroom, and he's the subject that he teaches. Imagine this, Christology 101, taught by the Lord Jesus himself. Here's who I am. It's an amazing class. I'll take that class. I'll sign me up. So we understand that this is both a call to serve and a call to learn Christ. In both cases, he is the master, right? So we see a full picture of discipleship here. Both concepts together. In, in fact, the command learn in the Greek comes as mathete, and it shares the same root as the word mathetes, which is translated disciple. Learning, discipleship go hand in hand. And so we see that being a disciple of Jesus involves a little bit more than just an acknowledgement of his existence or an assent to his teaching. Discipleship involves submission, obedience, following. When you come to Jesus, it's not merely to a convenient Savior, but you come to an insistent Master, and He wants your life. That's true discipleship. And again, it begs the question, is He your Master? Maybe you call Him Savior, but do you submit to Him as Lord? Are you serving Him? Have you bowed the neck, so to speak, to to take up his yoke, to be a student in his classroom? Or do you serve another master, such as the approval of men, or money, or the comforts of life, or perhaps even yourself? And you know yourself as a cruel master, never satisfied, 
always wanting more. Do you sit in the classroom of Jesus? Are you diligently learning Him, following Him, and applying His teaching to your life? Or do you sit in the world's classroom? Are you more interested in self-help material? Like Instagram influencers, get-rich-quick schemes, YouTube personalities, podcasters, even if they're conservative? Are you more excited to sit under the teaching of these men and women or to sit under every day the teaching of Jesus Christ? Who's more important to you? Whose classroom do you sit in? See, when you come to Christ by faith, when you truly come to Him with your heavy burden of sin and guilt, the fruit of obedience naturally comes out. You can't claim to love Him without obeying Him. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. See, that verse cuts a canyon through the postmodern evangelical church today. And it distinguishes the true followers from the fake followers of Jesus Christ. Are you following him? Not just rationally assenting to his teaching, not just acknowledging him from afar, but are you following him as slave and as student? Is he your master? Now, if somebody were to come up to you today at Chipotle, assuming you're having lunch at Chipotle, and they were to say, hey, come with me and make me your master, you would say, all right, how long do I have to live in your cult? When do I drink the Kool-Aid and die? Because that is something a cult leader would say, Right? That's a serious call. And it requires a great level of trust, doesn't it? And so why? Why should we make Jesus our master? Why why should we trust him with such a serious call on our life? Jesus gives us, in this passage, three good reasons why. Three reasons to make him your master. And it's right in this text. Point number one, the first good reason, is that his heart is kind. His heart is kind. Jesus is not a cruel, he's not an abusive, he's not a vindictive master. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. You can trust him. This little phrase is beautiful. Jesus reveals his very heart. It's like he takes our hand to his vein and says, can you feel that? It's like he takes our ear to his chest and says, can you hear it? My heart beats gentle and lowly. We have a window into not only the heart of Jesus Christ, this wonderful man, but the God man. We have a window into the heart of God. And I don't know of another place in Scripture where God explicitly reveals His heart this way. As far as I know, this is the only place in the Gospels where Jesus tells us His very heart, and He tells us that He's gentle, and it is lowly. And so let's unpack these words. Let's first understand what the heart is, and what Jesus is talking about when He says His heart is gentle and lowly. William Hendrickson writes this, The heart is the core and the center of a person's being. It is the mainspring of dispositions as well as feelings and thoughts. It's the very hub of the wheel of existence, the center from which all the spokes radiate. 
Dane Ortland says this, when the Bible speaks of the heart, it speaks of the central animating center of all that we do. It's what gets us out of bed in the morning. It's what we daydream about when we drift off to sleep. It's our motivation headquarters. The heart in biblical terms is part of is not, excuse me, part of who we are. It is the center of who we are. It drives everything we do. So get this. Jesus shows us the hub of his being. He shows us the affections from which all the spokes or yeah, the spokes of his compassion radiate. He tells us what gets him out of bed in the morning, what drives him toward the sinner, not away from him. This is his impulse. This is his disposition toward those who come to him tired and burdened. He's not critical. He's not harsh. He's not angry. He's not disappointed in you. He's not impatient. He's not frustrated with you. He is gentle and lowly. Let's look at the word gentle. Gentle could also be translated meek. It's synonymous with humility. It's used to communicate a consideration of others. Kindness toward other people. The one who is gentle is not reactive. They're not forceful. The one who's gentle is quick to listen, slow to speak. He's quick to help, slow to criticize, quick to forgive. Slow to anger. Proverbs 15.4 says, A gentle tongue is a tree of life. Oh, isn't that true? In your life, when somebody responds to you gently, it gives you life. A gentle heart springs forth gentle words which build up and restore and bring life to the brokenhearted. He doesn't tear you down. He doesn't kick the horse while it's dead. He doesn't beat you over with a stick. He is gentle. Gentle as you approach him, burdened. Lowly, he says, is also lowliness is in his heart. Lowly could be translated humble. This speaks to Jesus' approachability, his willingness to stoop low for the sake of others. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 gives us the mind of Christ. How does Jesus think about us? Here's how he thinks about us. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a slave, by being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And get this. It's not because he had to. Not because it was his duty or it was his obligation. Listen, listen. The king of glory. The king of glory. King over heaven and earth. He stooped down low. Laying aside the accolades of heaven. Taking up a slave's yoke. And he served to death. He gave his very life on a cross. Why? Why? The autopsy results are in. You know what they found in his heart? Gentleness and lowliness. That's why. He loves the sinner. That he responds kindly, not harshly. 
that he was willing to lower himself to the point of death to save the sinner like you and I. That's the heart of this master. Here's a master that you can trust. He's not obligated to serve. He wants to serve. He's not obligated to forgive. He wants to forgive. He's not obligated to give his life. He wanted to give his life. He's not obligated to show you kindness. We don't deserve it. But he wants to show us kindness because it's in his heart. Can you trust someone with this kind of heart? Can you trust him? Of course we can. You can know that he's going to lead you kindly because he already proved it. Will you willingly serve a master who's already served you? Can you give your life to someone who's already given their life to you? Jesus didn't just show us his heart, he proved it. All the way to death. He's a master worth trusting and following Make him your master first because his heart is kind. The second reason that you should make him your master is that you will find rest. You will find rest. Jesus adds this in verse 29. He says, And you will find rest for your souls. This is a a promise, a future indicative, which means it will come true. Taking up his yoke and learning him will result in rest for your soul. Now, notice, rest is promised twice in this passage. It was already promised in verse 28. It says, if you come to me and you're weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Give me your burden and in exchange, I'll give you rest. And then he promises it again after these two commands. Take up my yoke and learn from me. And now it's going to get hard. No. He says that you will continue, in a sense, to find rest in obedience. And again, notice it's rest for the soul. It's not necessarily rest in all of life or an easy, comfortable life. Of course, I do want to point out, though, that rest for your soul results in rest for your body in some senses. When your soul's at rest, when you're confident in Christ, when you know that you're, you have assurance of your salvation, that you're walking with Him, that He's with you, that relieves you of stress, doesn't it? And sometimes that results in, in even better sleep, more healthy living. So there is kind of an indirect result, but it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to become rich or more comfortable. But there is an indirect result of rest for your soul resulting in rest for your body. So, But pointing that out, listen, Jesus is not promising the earthly spa treatment here. He's not promising a, a manicure and a pedi. He's not promising a comfortable life free from all conflict, free from all pain, free from all trouble free from trial. This obviously is not a promise of earthly prosperity or blessing. This is a promise of soul rest, inner person rest, which in my opinion is far better than the rest that you could experience in the outer man. If your inner man is at ease and rested, 
It doesn't matter what happens to the outer man. Also, again, this rest is experienced twice. It not only comes when you first come to Christ, but it is the ongoing experience of the one who serves him as master. And we don't really think of this aspect of it. We think of coming to Jesus, we're relieved of our burdens, and we find rest, and then the Christian life gets hard. Obedience is a burden, but that's not the case. That's not what we see in the Scriptures. And so a couple of weeks ago, when I talked about the soul rest that we experience when we come to Christ, I pointed to all these aspects of soul rest. What does soul rest look like? And, and I have a, a list uh, up here of all these aspects of soul rest that we experience when we come to Him in faith. But I also want to show how we continue to experience this kind of soul rest when we walk in obedience to Him. How about the first one? A clear conscience. Peter, in the book of 1 Peter, he correlates a good conscience with good behavior. In 1 Peter 3.16, he says, if you're You have a good conscience because of your good behavior, which puts others to shame if they make false accusations against you. They can accuse you of whatever, but if you know that you are right before God and you're walking according to His Word, then you have a clear conscience as a result of your obedience. The second aspect of soul rest is assurance, confidence that we can know God. 1 John talks about this. 1 John says, And by this we know that we've come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. See, assurance follows obedience. It gives us a a knowledge or an experience, you could say, of your assurance. How about peace? Well, the peace of God comes upon you, not just at salvation, but in your sanctification. You know, the peace promised in Philippians 4.6 That verse maybe you have up on your wall, the peace that surpasses all understanding. You know that promise comes after five verses of commands for Christian living? Philippians 4, 1 through 5 have commands like stand firm, rejoice always, do not be anxious, trust God, then you'll experience the peace which surpasses all understanding. Peace and obedience go hand in hand. How about joy? Can you find joy obeying the commands of God, walking according to His Word? David, the man after God's own heart, did. He writes in Psalm 119, I find happiness when I obey your commands. How about hope? Do you have a greater sense of hope when you're walking with God according to His commands? Sure you do. Psalm 33, 18 says, The eye of the Lord is on those who obey Him and on those who hope in His steadfast love. Obedience and hope go hand in hand. How about satisfaction? Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. David writes in Psalm 119 again, he says, For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. So listen, you can have this kind of soul rest. You can experience these things as you walk in obedience to Christ. Not just in the past when you came to Him, but today, Christian, today. 
If you continue to follow Him as your master, you can experience this. Now, this seems counterintuitive to us because if we think about becoming slaves, we think about work. We think about hardship. We think about taking up a yoke. We think, well, that just sounds like more work to me. That sounds like a a greater burden to bear. Obedience is hard. Well, that depends on the kind of yoke that you take up. And that's where the third reason comes in to make Jesus Christ our master. Number one, make him your master because his heart is kind. Number two, make him your master because you will find rest. That's a promise. And number three, make him your master because his yoke is kind. His yoke is kind. Look at verse 30. He says, For my yoke is is easy, and my burden is light. So what kind of yoke are you carrying? The yoke of Christ or the yoke of this world? The yoke of Christ or the yoke of legalism? The yoke of Christ or the yoke of approval? See, Christ's yoke is not like the yoke of Pharaoh who forced slavery in Egypt. Christ's yoke is not like the yoke of Solomon, who apparently overworked his people. Christ's yoke is not like the yoke of the Pharisees, who tied up heavy burdens, too hard to bear, and they placed them on people's shoulders. Christ's yoke is not the unbearable yoke of legalism, which Peter and Paul both speak adamantly against in the early church. Acts 15.10 and Galatians 5.1. They describe that yoke of legalism as very heavy. No, no, no. Christ's yoke, did you hear him? He said it's easy and it's light. What does he mean by that? What does he mean? Well, let's look at that first word, easy. The word easy could also be translated as kind. When speaking of a yoke, it's talking about a bar that isn't too heavy. A bar that doesn't chafe on your shoulders. But it's actually in some ways comfortable. Comfort in obeying his commands. Now this word light has this idea of weightlessness or insignificance. Dane Orland writes, what helium does to a balloon is what Christ's yoke does for his followers. J.C. Ryle writes, his yoke is no more a burden to us than feathers are to a bird. While all the other yokes of this life weigh us down, the yoke of Christ lifts us up. Listen to what John says in 1 John 5.3. He says, this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Submission to Christ is not difficult when it's done with the right motive. Now why? How can obedience be life-giving, restful for us in Christ? Well, because your heart has been changed. This is important for you to understand. Christian, you've been born again. You're a new creation, the Bible says. You have now become obedient from 
the heart. Romans 6 says you're no longer a slave to sin, but thanks be to God. You've been transformed. You've been born again, regenerated. You've become obedient from the heart. It's who you are. And so get this, as your master's heart is inclined to lead you gently and lowly, your heart behind him is inclined to obey him. That is your disposition toward Christ as a true Christ follower. Your heart is to obey Him because He's your master. You want to. You don't have to. You want to. And it just comes out because of the gratitude that you have for what He has done for you. You don't do it reluctantly, but you do it willingly because it's in your nature, your new nature, as a true Christ follower. You know, we make obedience hard. We make it burdensome, even as Christians, when we do it with the mindset of earning God's favor or earning the approval of others. That's when we make obedience hard. That's when we make the yoke heavy. When we do it out of duty. And that's the unbearable yoke of, of Phariseeism and legalism. It doesn't deal with your burden of sin. It doesn't deal with the guilt. It doesn't deal with the shame. It just adds another yoke of slavery that is impossible to bear. And Christ in this passage isn't asking you to take up another yoke in addition to the burden of your sin. He says, come to me, I'll exchange that burden of sin for rest. Because Jesus deals with the burden of sin. Amen? He dealt with it by dying on the cross. By taking that heavy load off of your back. And in exchange, He gives you the yoke of His kindness. A heart that wants to obey, that's inclined towards obedience. And when done with the right motive, it is not hard. It's what we want to do. Because we love Him. We're not led by guilt. We're not led by the approval of others. Christ leads you not with their yoke, but with His yoke. And so we take it up in faith. Not by works. Not by performing for Him. Not by earning it. You take it up in faith and you trust that He dealt with the debt of sin. He saves us by grace through faith alone. And He will continue to deal kindly with us as we obey Him from a heart of gratitude. Here's the sum of it. Obedience motivated by gratitude is not hard. Obedience motivated by love is not hard. Obedience motivated by trust is not hard. Obedience motivated by approval is impossible. It's impossible. So we can't make ourselves approved before God. Christ did that. We can't continue to win back, pay Him back for the gift that He gave us. That's contrary to grace. We obey because we want to, not because we have to. And when we as Christians remember that, then walking with Christ is easy. It's life-giving. It's restorative to our soul. It doesn't become duty or obligation anymore. We want to. We, ha we, we have to because we want to. And so, if you don't want to, then ask yourself, do I really know Him? Have I experienced the love, the grace, the transformative regeneration that 
The Bible talks about, am I a new creation? Do I have a heart that wants to obey? Evaluate your life according to Romans 6. Or are you still a slave to sin? You know, getting after that master that rules your life, the idol, the sin, whatever it is. Or are you truly following Christ? Do you want to obey? And for some of us Christians, we just need that subtle reminder of the gospel every day. We just need to be taken back to the hill with a cross on top and an empty tomb below. We need to see Christ. We need to remember that those pierced wrists results in our free wrists. We're no no longer shackled to sin. We're no longer shackled to enslavement of the prince of the power of this world. We're freed from him. But then we become masters, shackled, if you will, to Christ, who's far better, who leads us kindly who gives us not a heavy burden impossible for us to bear, but a kind burden that we want to bear. Because we'd rather serve Him than serve anybody else or even serve ourselves. We need to take up the easy and weightless burden of Jesus Christ. Not because we have to, but because we want to. And so Christian, if obedience is hard for you right now, Evaluate yourself. Are you going back to slavery of the slavery of legalism or the slavery of sin? Go back to Christ and remember why it is you obey. And again, if I could plead with you, non-Christian, if you, if you say you had a Jesus encounter, a come to me, a come to Jesus experience, but you're not living for him, if you're not serving him with your life or following him, you've got to ask yourself, do you really know him? Do you really know Him? Oh, make Christ your master today. Resubmit yourself to Christ. Because His heart is kind. You'll find rest in obedience. And His yoke is kind. There is not a greater master. There's not a greater subject. There's not a greater professor than the Lord Jesus. Continue to follow Him. You know, I will take up the yoke of a man who took up a cross for me. Consider that as you obey Christ this week. Let's pray. God, as we see just a window, a glimpse into your heart, it is too much for us. It is far too wonderful that there is not a creator who just made all of this and walked away. There's not a a creator who's inconsiderate, uncaring, not thoughtful toward us. But we have a creator who is gentle and lowly in heart. Who is willing to even lower himself to become a man to take up the apron and serve all the way to death for our sake. And you give your very life for us in Christ to accomplish our salvation. God, how can we in full consideration of that not obey? How can we not want to follow you, serve you with our life because you've served us to the the highest degree? I'm thankful, God, that you don't Ask us to do things that you yourself did not do first. You show us the way. 
by walking just a few steps ahead of how kind, how gentle, how lowly, how loving you really are. I pray that those qualities in you would drive us to obedience, not because we have to out of duty or obligation, because we want to. God, I pray that you give us the joy and obedience that we see in Scripture, that you'd give us the rest of our souls as we follow you and take up your kind yoke. I pray that you'd rid us from slavery to sin, that you'd rid us from slavery to other masters, you'd rid us even from the slavery to legalism, to a, to a dutiful, obligatory Christian life that's just kind of going through the motions and reverting back to trying to earn your favor. We, we didn't. We can't. You've saved us by grace. I pray that you motivate us by that grace to obey you with full hearts for your glory out of gratitude for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.